As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Late night Midnight on the interstate And I didn't feel so great Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. And if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, please go to theathletic.com slash straight from the source, and that'll get you in for $3.99 a month. Without a doubt, The Athletic provides the best hockey coverage on the planet. We cover every single team. We also, by the way, have great, great investigative journalists like Katie String, who we all aspire to be at The Athletic. You also get... Wall-to-wall Minnesota Wild coverage, uh, which uh, during the last couple weeks has been uh, kind of exhausting, a little fatiguing with the uh, with a lot of talk about COVID-19 and the Wild shutdown. And that brings me to my first guest today, which will be Dr. Bill Maurice, the president of Mayo Labs down in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, Dr. Maurice is somebody that I've actually gotten to know for several years. He's a wild season tick holder, an absolute wild fanatic. So he and I, uh, back in my days at the Star Tribune, used to correspond on email a lot. I've met him and his son at Wild Games as well. And he's somebody that I've leaned on a lot during the pandemic to really uh, research a lot of my reporting. He's been a source uh, for a lot of my stories. In fact, uh, not only me, but uh, he was just uh, appeared in a Kevin Kerr's article this week on vaccination. So we talk about all things uh, COVID on this podcast. He's somebody, remember, and if you read my story last week, um, Mayo Labs is now the place where the NHL is sending uh, samples of its positive tests for genetic forensic to, dis- to try to discuss discover uh, not only the variants, but whether there is cross-team on-ice transmission, which I think there's growing evidence that there will be. We'll talk about that. We'll also have Dr. Maurice do the most important thing on this podcast, and that's break down and fix the Wilds power play. Speaking of which, 
The Wild finally played a game last night for the first time in 14 days since they last played February 2nd against the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, their power play still stinks. They went 0 for 3. They're now 3 for 45 on the season. That's 6.7%. There's nobody in the league that's lower than that. Even the Seattle Kraken have a better power play percentage, I think. Um, last night was a tough game for the Wild. They lost 4 nothing. I think that a lot of... Uh, it's just, frankly, amazing when you look at their lineup last night compared to February 2nd. Just look at the different things in last night's lineup. Marcus Johansson at center. Matt Zuccarello making his season debut. Matt Dumba playing for the first time since that first Colorado game where he sprained his ankle. Uh, Jordan Greenway appeared on the power play. Kalen Addison made his NHL debut. Dakota Mermis made his wild debut. Uh, Matt Barkowski and Louis Belpedio made their season debuts. Uh, Ten guys were still out of the lineup if you include Kyle Rao. That was Nick Bonino, Ian Cole, Nico Sturm. I probably shouldn't have done this off the top of my head. Uh, Jared Spurgeon, Cam Talbot, Jonas Burdine, Brad Hunt, Carson Soucy, and Victor Rask. I think I got all ten. Count, count it up, rewind, and make sure I got all 10. Um, but the other thing is the four guys that returned last night, which were Bukestead, Erickson Eck, uh, Felino, and Johansson, have, I believe, the residual effects of being sick for the last couple weeks because uh, three of those four really didn't look good last night. Johansson and, and Felino really struggled. Bukestead had a very poor game. And just, I mean, you look at his face and he doesn't, he just doesn't look healthy. And um, Yule Eriksson Ek, I thought he actually played really well last night. But you look at him on the bench as well, and we had him on a Zoom this week, and he just looks kind of like a shadow of what he did two weeks ago. Um, so this is going to be quite the quite the experience of getting this team back on track. And the the schedule doesn't let up now. This what was a four game road trip now became a then became a three game road trip with the postponement of the first LA game. Now is back to a five game road trip because what the league did is they added a San Jose game and then the makeup avalanche game at the end of this road trip. And then later in the season, they'll have an LA San Jose trip rather than a two game San Jose trip to make up for the first missed San Jose game. And then all four of the Arizona and St. Louis postponed home games have also been rescheduled. You can read all about that in the athletic. Um, lots of really cool stories in the athletic the last couple of weeks um, that I highly recommend. Obviously, the story that I did with Dr. Maurice about COVID-19 and all the enhanced protocols that the NHL introduced this week, which in this uh, last couple of weeks, which includes rapid testing, which I don't know how they didn't have that at the very beginning, because that could have, I think, solved a lot of these outbreaks that are have ravaged teams like the Minnesota Wild. The other really cool story that I did the other day that I highly, highly uh, ask you to, to, to read, because honestly, it was one of the biggest blasts that I've had in the last year writing a story. It was just kind of refreshing right? about writing about a new player and, and actual hockey again. But I did a feature on Dakota Mermis, um, the former New Jersey Devils and Arizona Coyotes defenseman. He won a Clark Cup with the Green Bay Gamblers. He won a, a Memorial Cup with the Oshawa Generals. He's played in Lincoln. He played at the University of Denver. Um, uh, play, uh, he made his wild debut last night, but he is the nephew of Randall McDaniel, the Vikings legend in the Vikings Ring of Honor, the Pro Bowler for 12 consecutive years, uh, Hall of Famer in both college football and pro football, um, played 202 straight games at left guard once. How crazy is that? Um, and Randall and his wife, Marianne, which is is um, uh, Dakota's aunt, um, used to 
basically help raise them, uh, both Jacoda and Jared. He would, they would come up here from their home in Illinois every summer, spend two weeks at a time with their family up at Camp McDaniel by Lake Minnetonka. They would come up here for hockey tournaments as well. And uh, just a lot of really cool pictures with the story. And it was just a really, really fun story to write with tons of anecdotes. So again, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash straight from the source and get in for $3.99 a month. And you can read that story and all the stories on The Athletic and every single sport uh, through Throughout all our platforms. Uh, without further ado, just a really fun contact, uh, uh, podcast with one of my favorite, favorite guests of all time, Mayo Labs president, Dr. Bill Maurice. And as mentioned, uh, very happy to be joined by Dr. Bill Maurice, a rabid wild fan, also my biggest, uh, biggest expert source that I've used during this pandemic to help my reporting along. And, you know, the biggest question, um, Doc, is any chance you guys are are uh, developing a vaccine for the wild power play. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, if we were, that would be under, under wraps. It'd be, be highly secret, but no, I, I, I don't think there's any, anything in the offing there from Mayo Clinic at least. Yeah, no, that would be an absolute miracle if you could f- figure out a way to fix that. Uh, three for 45 this season. I know that you're a big time wild fan. Uh, any ideas of what you could do to fix this thing though? Well, I mean, I, I like the ideas that I've heard of getting Greenway out there as a net front presence. Uh, you know, obviously a big Parisi fan, but having Greenway, he, he, you know, especially with his, he's actually playing to his size, if you will, this year. And then the, uh, the other idea, you know, we've only seen one game from him, but uh, you know, my, my son, Dan, who's also, that was a hockey player and also a <laughs> rabid fan. We were really, we thought he had great, uh, great, uh, offensive skill and good really good vision and, and so he could see where he could help quarterback the power play which i know he's done throughout his career here in his development so those are a couple things that come to mind at least yeah i think also week, oh that, sorry go ahead no 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 i was just gonna say last night in the four nothing loss to the la kings actually i thought greenway was actually very very good so uh you know hopefully yeah me get too some, some more power plays and could get that thing going uh uh did, did i interrupt you were you gonna say have another thought there or no well, the other thing I think is just that, uh, you know, Spurgeon just doesn't seem quite on his game yet either. Yeah. So I think that's also hurting the power play because, you know, he contributes offensively on the power play quite a bit. So Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of things hurting the power play. Uh, Zach has not had a good start to the season by any stretch. And uh, uh, obviously all the uh, I mean, their second power play to start with the season always looked like it was going to be a potential problem, but they haven't gotten that thing going as well. Um, but I know that a lot of people, Dr. Maurice, uh, you, you are a returning champion of the show. A lot of people really enjoyed uh, your podcast that you did with me earlier in the pandemic uh, last last spring or, or early summer. And uh, Dr. Maurice, if you don't know, is the president of Mayo Clinic Labs and the chair of lab medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic. He's also the big knocker on KFAN here in Minnesota. And hopefully people around the country uh, have been reading all your quotes lately in The Athletic, not just in my stories, but in Kevin Kurz's awesome awesome story about the uh, vaccines and whether or not NHLers should get vaccinated. That was a really good um, story the other day. But let's start off um, sort of at the beginning of this uh, whole outbreak in the NHL, Doc. Um, The one thing that is very clear is that it feels like the last week, week and a half, the NHL has started to calm things down. I mean, there's obviously going to be infections with players. That's just inevitable when it's sort of the Wild West and you let them go back out into society and their homes and things like that. But what the league didn't have from the beginning was same-day rapid tests. They had these PCR tests, 
which are very, very reliable, but you take them in the morning, they send them off to New Jersey, and they get the results the next day. And what that led was to players like Marcus Foligno, players on the Carolina Hurricanes, the Detroit Red Wings, the Buffalo Sabres, the the, uh, New Jersey Devils, unknowingly playing infected. And that's how an outbreak occurs. Do you feel like the PCR tests with all these enhanced protocols that the NHL has done um, now being supplemented by the POC rapid test is one reason why things have maybe calmed down here the last couple of weeks. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, because if you, to really understand the current situation, I think it's important to go back to how last season ended, you, you know, with the bubble. And I remember that's what we were talking about. And, you know, I had the real privilege. Uh, you've been, your writing on this has been great, by the way, the way you take some of the complex stuff and make it understandable. But well, that's because so we talked. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. But I don't know about that. But I mean, honestly, we, we we talked a lot about the bubble. Would the bubble be successful? Um, you know, and so number one, the bubble was successful, and in fact, it was so successful that it might have actually not given the league information on how much of a problem this was going to be if if the players were in society. Because you know, we compared that to the NHL or excuse me, the NFL at that time, which and MLB at that time, which had players, you know, living MLB in particular, you know, was having problems with outbreaks on teams because, you know, St. Louis, Florida, guys were, you know, doing stuff outside of of the stadium, outside of the confines of the team that were exposing them to the virus. But the NHL didn't have to deal with that. Um, and so they didn't really develop an understanding of what was going to happen once they had the players out in society coming back in and playing the games. The other thing is that, you know, we have these more transmissible variants. So one of the challenges with COVID all along has been the fact that individuals who are infected with the virus are most apt to spread it before they know that they're sick. And so, and now with these increased transmissibility variants of the, you know, the strains that have been identified in the United Kingdom, um, South Africa, and the United Kingdom strain is, is certainly here. There's even one that has arisen, interestingly, in Southern California, uh, mm-hmm. which may have uh, increased transmissibility. So it's easier to catch. And so they didn't have information when the, these more easily caught strains were circulating um, because of the bubble. And then the testing, the way the testing works, to your point, is to do the test in the morning. The PCR test in the lab is the most accurate, but you don't get the answer until the next day. Um, even if even if you had a machine there. So if we took one, we have these machines at Mayo Clinic that can run, you know, they can run thousands of tests in a day. And we could go and plop one in the X and it still would take, you know, six or eight hours to get the test back because there's just a certain amount of time that it, that it takes to do the test. So they were, they were testing the players, letting them play, and then pulling them based on positive results. Well, you can see if you combine that with the um, with the fact that players that don't know they have it can spread it, and, you know, like a Felino, that's when you really get into trouble. That's where the rapid test can really help. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing the league has started doing, um, you know, really since uh, we started working on the story that I wrote a couple weeks ago in The Athletic is, is sending uh, positive samples to Mayo Clinic to get analyzed for different variants and also to 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 um, see if there's cross-team transmissibility and things like that. Now, I don't want to put you in any positions where you're going to be giving out. Now that you're essentially working with the NHL, I don't want to put you in any positions where you're going to start giving out confidential information and, and get you in trouble. But it seems to me like this was a case study 
of where there had to be cross-team transmission. There's been lots and lots of uh, uh, evidence uh, from that study that you showed me in Tampa uh, years ago. CBC did a report where they they uh, they showed that study where there were thir- there was one asymptomatic player on one team that passed it to 13 of 22 players on the ice and one rink attendant. But there's been there was an outbreak in Georgia, an outbreak in North Carolina, Jersey, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire, Ottawa, Saskatchewan, according to the CBC report. But it seems like this was a case study where L.A. had it. Then a couple days later, next thing you know, Felino gets it. And then three or four days after that, which is usually the infection window, um, now all of a sudden there's an outbreak in Minnesota. Um, are, are you able to sort of discuss in a general sense whether or not maybe what we are seeing in the NHL was an example of cross-team transmissibility, again, without getting you in trouble? Yeah, well, yeah, let's not get me in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I do that well enough on my own. I don't need any help. But uh, no, I, you know, it's interesting as you were talking. I think that first of all, um, a lot of different sports leagues have reached out to Mayo Clinic um, just because of the challenge of trying to keep these athletes healthy in, in in any of the sport and allow them. And look, this is, I mean, the financial ramifications for the teams and the communities that they, they are in are huge, right? So they're really trying, and I've had the opportunity to talk to some of the uh, people from from the NHL, and people should know, number one, these are really bright people that really care. They've been, you know, great to work with. Um, and you, we're all trying to plan in a situation that's constantly changing. So, you, you know, the first question would be, well, if the rapid tests are better, why didn't they, you know, have those in the plan? Well, remember, the rapid tests, even as of this fall, when we had the Binax Now test, um, you know, the rapid antigen test that Abbott came out with that the, that the federal government distributed to nursing homes, there was, I got involved with that because there was a lot of, um, you know, that those tests perform real well when someone is sick, but when someone isn't symptomatic or doesn't know they're sick, you're kind of pushing the envelope and, and yet that's what you're trying to catch. And so what they found was that um, in the nursing homes, there were a lot of people who were having false positives. So you could see where a really high false positive rate, you'd be canceling a lot. You'd have teams showing up and canceling. So the science of the rapid testing has advanced a lot to where they're, they're nearly as accurate uh, as the in-lab tests. So they, the, the league has a much better tool. All the leagues do have a much better tool. I think for the NHL, it's particularly important, though, because of the fact that they're unlike the NFL, and unlike Major League Baseball, where, you know, in both of those sports, you had teams that were in the exact same situation as the Wild were in, where they had players that were on the field of play that were infected that didn't know it. And they really didn't see any cross-team transmission. There were no documented cases in either of those leagues. But if you pivot to the NHL, um, the even before the league restarted play outside of a bubble, there was, to your point, uh, evidence of on ice transmission for ice hockey and it that's that that was the, the report that i sent to you was from the cdc uh, based in atlanta the u.s cdc does these weekly morbidity mortality reports where they write up these interesting case reports um and and that but there's been other examples of this that hockey might be different you know we're going to work with the league to help them understand this but you just the if you just look at what's happened in terms of uh you know L.A. comes, a wild player gets sick, they go to Colorado, Colorado players get sick, same in New Jersey and Buffalo. Um, you know, the circumstantial evidence that, because it's not like these guys are sharing locker rooms and it's not like it's a, you know, in in, in the, the case that was in the CDC report, that was a rec league where, you know, anyone that's been played hockey or had family members play hockey, 
you know, you go into the rec league arenas and they're, uh, you know, I've never been in the wild locker room or in a professional NHL locker room, but I'm thinking it's probably a little bit <laughs> roomier, cleaner, better ventilated than a lot of those locker rooms. Um, but this was so you wouldn't expect, uh, you know, in the team, within the team, like you saw with the, with the NFL Titans. Right. I mean, that's a perfect comparison. The Titans were actually at the beginning of an outbreak when they came and played in Minnesota. They had games after that canceled. We did not have any Vikings players get sick. And yet you compare that with now, you know, L.A. coming here, players going off quarantine, Felino getting sick, going to Colorado, more players getting sick, um, you know, Colorado players getting sick. It just points a pretty uh, strong. Uh, it's very strong circumstantial evidence mm-hmm. that there's on ice transmission in, 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 in an NHL, which is different than the other sports. And what's really interesting that you explained, uh, you know, quite, quite succinctly even for somebody like me to understand is that these RNA viruses all have fingerprints. So you would be able to actually look at different samples and essentially know that it would be very unlikely that they could randomly get the same sort of, whether the right word is strain of it or or the fingerprints would be the same. Yeah, the strain is the right word. And, and, you know, and interestingly, this isn't this isn't a concern just for the NHL. Um, this is now becoming, a, it's going to be a major focus going forward that people are going to hear a lot about with, from the, from the, I believe that the Biden administration is very interested in getting a lot more sequencing, uh, meaning getting the fingerprint of the virus to your point. So these are, it's an interesting virus, right? The coronavirus actually, um, you know, it's it definitely, these viruses start in animals, <laughs> despite of whatever conspiracy theories out there. I mean, they definitely, we know that they, that they live in animals and then they can cross over into humans. So they cross between species. Um, if you just think about that for a second, you know, a, a human is a lot, and let's not even take coronavirus. There was one that happened in the Middle East called MERS, right? Where it looked like it was in camels and then crossed to humans. Well, a camel is a lot different than, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a MD or president of Mayo Clinic Labs to, to know that a camel is probably a lot different than a person. And so these viruses, they change. When they go to a new host, they actually have to change to adapt to the new host. So these changes and these mutations have been happening ever since coronavirus has been in people, and, SARS-CoV-2, and we've seen it. I mean, we've been watching all along. And to your point, we can actually now do essentially a family tree and show, you know, if you actually take take the virus and you look at the entire virus uh, infecting someone, you get essentially, as you say, a fingerprint. The other way I've heard it explained by my colleague, Dr. Greg Poland, who's a a vaccine expert here at Mayo, um, is that if you think of the virus, you know, the the genome of the virus, everything that's inside that viral particle that, that, you know, when it infects someone allows the virus to replicate, that's like a paragraph, right? And so the, the, and the, the virus is pretty, uh, sloppy at copying that paragraph. And so it'll start to have little typos and things in it. And so that's how it will change over time. The tests that we use to say is someone SARS-CoV-2 positive or not, the nasal swabs, that's just looking for a few words, you know, that are linked together in some of the sentences. So it doesn't give you the full picture to really tell if one, if, you know, if you and I are both COVID positive to tell if we had the same string, you have to read the whole paragraph, which is that holding of genomic sequencing. Mm. And to be very clear, Dr. Maurice is talking about the virus, not my writing. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Not a great sloppy analogy. Sloppy paragraphs with typos. <laughs> it just made, gave me a heart attack right there. You talking about it. I almost had to call you for some medicine. Um, <laughs> now maybe I'm getting you in trouble. I don't yeah, know. I know. Um, you know, I mean, it is amazing that that somehow people didn't think that that there could be, if you are infectious, 
and you, if you're positive for this virus and you're contagious, that it couldn't be transferred in a hockey game. I mean, I mean, these, well, it's the perfect environment. I mean, they are, they are like, as you said in my story, I mean, they're battling along the board. Then they're going back to the bench after an interval of a minute where they're huffing and puffing and talking to each other and, and respiratory droplets are going everywhere and they're drinking water and spitting. And it's just like, and then they're going into the locker room and doing it. So if you have a delay, a lag, a 24-hour lag in the testing and you don't know that people are positive, and remember, every single wild player that tested positive played the game before, whether it was Felino against Colorado, the second, ga- the, fir- the second game of the series, first game of the series, or all those guys, the third game of the series, it, it is, it's the place where it would, it would absolutely be littered on each other. Well, you know, it's it's, and you and I have talked about this before too. And we, I think in the context of the bubble, is that there unfortunately is no perfect test. There's no test that I can give you that I can say if it's positive, I'm 100% positive that you have COVID, and if it's negative, I'm 100% certain that you don't. But we do know what the test is at. The sooner you get the answer from when you take the test, the the more you're going to be able to use that test result to control the spread of the disease. That's why there's a, that's why there's such a great societal interest in rapid testing, right? And, and doing the contact tracing. So that's number one, you know, I think you're right. And, and the league really needs, needs to have the rapid testing, which they're now doing maybe more than other sports, because as you and I talked about too, I'm actually um, a fan of all, like all the four major sports and hockey is really unique in which you have, the the players that are it's really interval training right i mean i've been on the i've been on the bench with my as my son grew up playing hockey i mean those guys are gassed you know and and so they it's basically they're really breathing hard and the harder you breathe the more that you're going to create those droplets that can spread the virus and then and there's prolonged close contact i mean to me the closest thing i can think of honestly would either be a couple guys banging together underneath the boards in the nba or an NFL lineman, you know, but even there, it's sporadic contact. They have a chance to rest, um, you know, at least for NFL linemen. So I do think that the, that the NHL is different and, and just the, the, the type of play is different compared to just about any other sport. Um, and that's that that does engender risk. And then there's all the other stuff like the bench and all those things, too. It's not like the NFL where the guys can really spread out or, and, you know, an MLB where they actually opened up, I think, some of the some of the lower, you know, lower part of the stadium for the players to distance on they, they can't do that on the bench and it, you know it would be crazy even if they extended the bench how would you get you know the line changes would mm-hmm. be we get all screwed up the the cold air too right uh, alex um Sprinson is his name he's a cbc news uh producer in in toronto he sent me his piece that he did uh about um a month ago on the on the dangers of ice hockey and this virus. And the one thing he had, he had an air quality and ventilation expert on there. And he basically was saying that the ice, because it's the cold air near it is more dense, that that is less likely to rise up. And that leads to like a layer of pollutants being sort of trapped near the ice. So these guys are, are battling uh, through potentially polluted air. Yeah. I think that's, it was, I thank you for sending that. I I got a chance to, to watch it before I came on. It's really nicely done. We know a lot about that uh, the airflow in, in particular uh, has a lot, has a big, very big role in the spread of this virus, right? Um, and so we've done that even at, at Mayo here, for instance. We've had a team of engineers that looked at all the different operating rooms and different hospital rooms to just look at the airflow and to see how safe they were going to be, you know, in terms of 
protecting patients and doctors and providers, nurses, other people from the virus. And so it is true. Again, hockey, unlike football or baseball or the, or basketball, is played on a cold surface, right? And the air is mm-hmm. naturally denser and it's not moving as much. And so you combine that with people really breathing heavily and, and banging into each other uh, and, and having that kind of prolonged contact where their faces are close. Right. And they're and they're more face to face. Even if you think about the NBA, if someone's underneath the boards, it's it's actually typically if you're posting up, you're going to have your back to somebody. Right. And like a board battle, you're going to have guys with their heads down together, both looking at the same object down by their skates. I mean, all these things, it sounds like minutia, but they end up being really important. So, yeah. And then that air quality. The other thing I thought about, which is interesting as I looked at that piece, is the concept of 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 droplet versus aerosolized spread. So if you're, you know, in terms of uh, thinking about how those things are different, you know, when you're on a plane and you hear you're next to someone who's coughing and you and I have talked about this, yeah. you're like, I, I'm pretty damn sure I'm going to get sick. Right. Cause this person's coughing near me. That's droplet spread. You know, you know, if you, someone's coughing way in the back of the plane, you start thinking about all well, this air circulating, but they're not coughing on you. So you don't worry. That's not really droplet spread. Aerosolized spread is like um, it, the examples of that are like chicken pox and the measles, right? And remember, if you if you had chicken pox, um, you, you caught it, you could be in the same room with someone and they could be across the room and somehow you got chicken pox, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's aerosolized spread. That's when it's not droplets. It's actually smaller particles that can go. Uh, there was a lot of debate over the summer of whether or not COVID spread by aerosol, meaning these finer, finer um, droplets. It turns out it can, but it doesn't in most cases unless there's like a lot of forced air and a lot of aerosols being created. So it is quite even possible that there might even between the how hard the players are breathing, the nature of the air, particularly in an arena if there's a lot of uh, fans going to move air around, you could actually even get longer. You know, it could be more than six feet that the virus is, is traveling to spread. I know I have a ton of Twitter questions for you, and I want to talk to you about vaccines, uh, long haul illnesses. I want to talk to you about Marco Rossi and, and and a couple other things about last night's game that I noticed about certain players. Um, but something you just said did uh, spark my interest. I know Mayo Clinic has an affiliation with Delta Airlines, which is obviously the major airline here in Minnesota. That's what I fly everywhere. Um, I have told you this a gazillion times. I have not been sick since probably last December, like two Decembers ago. I'm like bookmark, I'm sick five times a hockey season. And so what that tells me is since I'm not flying anywhere or staying in hotels that I'm getting sick on aircraft. Uh, do you see that when, when this whole nightmare is behind us, uh, uh, any way that airlines like Delta would just say, you know what, uh, everybody mask up, you know, because it's clearly the fact that I'm, that I have not gotten my awful five times a year bronchial or strep throats has to mean that it's, it's coming on aircraft in my well yeah no it's interesting also that um you know this and i've talked about this on the radio a little bit but we have seen essentially no flu season here in the united states at at one point we had run twenty thousand because if you remember in the fall you know dr fauci and other national health leaders were really concerned that we're going to have the double hit where we're going to have the flu season come on top of covid and it would be terrible and Flu never came. We did 20,000 tests. At one point, we had done 20,000 flu tests because we developed tests that could detect both, right? And we did 20,000 of them, and we didn't have a single positive flu uh, case. 
And that, it's your point, it's because people aren't traveling, right? It's about the masking, but it's really because people aren't traveling because flu usually starts down in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere and comes up. Um, I, how airline travel will look different, it already is a lot different. Uh, Dr. Henry Ting, who was at Mayo, and uh, and he and I worked on, on the on really framing out doing the work with Delta. Now there's a lot of great, great doctors and nurses and other statisticians that are on that project. So I'm not trying to, uh, I can't even list them all, but Dr. Ting and I were kind of the first people in that. And Dr. Ting has actually left Mayo and joined Delta as their chief health officer. That's how seriously they're taking it because you're right. They've already actually invested billions of dollars in like HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA filtration of the aircraft redoing surfaces. So the surfaces, you know, are these ones that are antimicrobial. Um, I do think we'll see changes in, 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 in some of the policies around, um, like, you know, anyone's been to China, you walk through the temperature check there. Um, so we might see some of that stuff, but of course it's going to be how, how willing are people going to be to do this? Personally, I mean, I probably will start wearing a mask when I travel by plane just to protect my, I'm not going to be an N95 or anything crazy like that. But mm -hmm. I mean, because even I, because I, I agree, I mean, the air, aircraft are a place when, you know, people are sick it's, and you're just in close contact for a long period of time. And so, but uh, they're really taking it seriously. That's for sure. Delta is. Yep, I could see you in your big knocker mask next time. Uh, <laughs> Delta. That's how I'll recognize you. Um, Doc, uh, I wanted to ask you about last night's game. Um, you know, obviously, I don't know what these guys are feeling. Uh, you know, Felino, Bukestead, Eric Sinek, and Johansson last night. But they, uh, other than Eric Sinek, uh, three of them really dramatically struggled. And the other thing that I've noticed is they all look extremely different when we get them on Zooms and when they showed them on the bench last night. Like, like Nick Bukestead looks ill. And and I'm the one to talk about anybody's look, but he he looks gaunt in the face. Same thing with Erickson Eck. Um, same thing with Felino. The first day we saw him, you know what what are the resi all these guys had uh, mild to significant symptoms. They've they've said it out loud. I'm not giving away trade secrets or breaking HIPAA rules or anything like that. They have said that they were ill. Um, the majority of wild players have had significant uh, symptoms from this virus. What are the residual effects? Even though they're testing negative. Like, uh, how long could this last? Because they just, uh, Felino said after the game last night that that he was extremely tired late in shifts, in shifts that he normally wouldn't be that way. It's funny because, you know, since it was on the West Coast, I didn't watch. I watched the game. I didn't watch the, the post-game presser at all, you know. But, you know, it, what comes to mind actually was on the on the third goal, I think, by Dustin Brown. If you're watching that the replay, you can see, you know, Felino kind of doesn't even see that the that the, the puck got turned over by I think by yeah. Suter, and he was just kind of coasting into the bench, and that's why Dustin Brown came down basically uncovered, you know, and, and and potted that goal. And my son was going wild about Dan. <laughs> He's like, if I had Bantams, I would have gotten bitched out for that. Blah blah blah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, but uh, you know, and then I thought, God, he's probably just so tired because you could see it. Even he, they had some bursts of energy. So yeah, I, there's just no doubt. And, and and that's one of the things with COVID in the public discourse. We talk a lot about we fo the focus on mortality. You know, well, how many people are really dying from COVID? Well, you know, the reality is that that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, people are getting people that get sick with it can get really sick. And our lungs, particularly in, in it, it, it takes a while. But the ability for our lungs to exchange air is it, it, it does not tolerate inflammation. It doesn't take very much at all. 
for that for the efficiency of the lung to go down. And that inflammation doesn't go away overnight. It can last for quite a while, and especially if in, a, in a professional athlete who's really tuned to their body and pushing it like you do in hockey. They're going to feel it. So, you know, it's not surprising that some of these guys just aren't doing well. I, anecdotally, when I was on with Dr. Poland, we did a media event last week to talk about vaccines and, and variants and things. He talked about when someone asked him about the vaccine and the risk of the vaccine, he's 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 a very healthy guy. His son's actually a professional athlete, um, in, I believe, in soccer. And so he was talking about the fact that he got the vaccine. He felt sick for a couple of days, um, but got better. And, and, and then one of his colleagues, same age, also fit, is, uh, got sick with COVID, was in the hospital for a week, and now 12, week, 12 weeks later is just getting around his house uh, without getting short of breath. So, yeah. I mean, you know, this is a serious virus. And once it causes that inflammation, it, there's just, you can't, um, the, the clock is set and, turn, and it doesn't go away overnight. Yeah, I know a doctor that is fit as a fiddle, and he had COVID last July and still no no sense of taste or smell and gets winded walking upstairs. And this is somebody that, that climbs rocks and, you know, and, and mountains and things like that. I mean, absolutely fit. So it's scary. That's why somebody the other day, not to not to put you on the spot, but somebody the other day tweeted me like how many, you know, really sarcastically, how many professional players have died from COVID? And I'm like, that, you know, that is not the point. Like, yep. you know, first of all, just for my... You know, just from a public health perspective, you, the reason why we can't get rid of this virus is that we keep on spreading it. So if you spread it to a bunch of professional athletes and then they're going out in public and giving it and giving it and giving it, it just it'll never end. But the, the point is, I mean, we're seeing with Marco Rossi right now. Here is a 19-year-old, perfectly fit, first-round pick, outstanding hockey player whose season has ended because he has long-term complications with, with COVID-19. Um, you know, it's just, it just seems to be so ridiculous that people are just like, well, how many people have died? You know? Yeah, I, I know. I agree a hundred percent, you know, and it's, uh, because there's all sorts of health effects. There's the long haulers, which you just mentioned, which we might get to if we have time, you know, people that have long-term symptoms from COVID, uh, and, and even going back, I think this, this conversation really does go back to how we started the, the podcast about the on ice spread, right? Because that's the league has, and the players association have a lot to think about if there really is confirmed on ice spread, because I mean, look at Felino. if Felino it would, had been a free agent, you know, if he hadn't signed his extension and this was his free agent year. Great point. And, and then he's putting that on tape and you already know the cap is going to come down because they haven't played, you know, that these are, you know, and hockey, the, the culture of the sport, which I love is that guys tough it out, men and women both, and they don't really disclose what's going on. You know, they're not going to come on and say, geez, you know, I still can't get up my stairs at home. I'm not surprised I have a hard time at the end of my shift. So, yeah. you know, this is this, this, these are all real issues for these players and, and, and potentially long-term ramifications as well, but near-term financial and then the long-term health complications, which are not, in, they're not common, but they're not insignificant either. Let's talk a little bit about Marco Rossi. Now, granted, both you and I don't know exactly what's going on with with him. I think we've, uh, you know, we've assumed some stuff based on some of the reporting that I've done and the fact that he didn't pass his cardiac screening and, and the blood work and all that. Luckily, actually, it was really cool. He put out a tweet, uh, I think literally it's 10 minutes before this podcast saying that, you know, hashtag feeling better. Um, but, but, you know, what are the concerns here? I mean, you know, they keep on saying... They, meaning the Wild, the, uh, through their doctors, uh, Serge Paye, his agent, that they're confident that this is not going to be career-threatening, that he's going to be you know, perfectly fully recovered. 
Um, what are the potentials here uh, with, with a player like this? So let's talk a little bit, because this is another area that's been controversial, um, you know, in terms of the, the, the cardiovascular or the heart effects of COVID, right? And then going back to the, if you go back to the summer, the late summer, about, you know, when should when the Big Ten first was canceling its football season and, the, you know, the, ACC, the uh, SEC was not, those sorts of things. When someone gets really sick with a virus, there's really two, two ways to think about this. is When someone gets really sick with the virus, you just get inflammation through your body and you can get some of that in your heart. It doesn't mean that your cells, you're, you're actually attacking your heart. It's more like you, you just get some, uh, swelling's not the right word, but there's just some, some, you know, just because you're so sick, you can see some of that effects on the heart. The heart doesn't necessarily get damaged by that, but just, it does take a while for that to recover. And you can see, and you will be able to tell, particularly in a well-conditioned athlete, there's some things you can look at in the blood and other things that will say there's this going on, right? That's the other thing that you worry about is actually when either the virus or your immune system starts to actually attack your heart muscle cells. And that's what we call myocarditis. That's a really scary proposition for an athlete but for two reasons. Number one, that's when you can get into risk of sudden cardiac death from inflammation. And also, the, you know, the reason that we try and prevent heart attacks is because your heart muscle can't regrow. So you can imagine if it's someone, if it's an athlete, if they have some of their heart, you know, even if it's 5% of their heart muscle that gets damaged in some way, that's not coming back. And that 5% can make a big, be a difference between being a first liner and a fourth liner or, you know, uh, or, uh, or someone that doesn't make it. So luckily the latter, and that was the, the controversy early on was there was, there are people suggesting that, 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 that second thing, the heart damage itself was common in COVID. Thankfully it's not. But the other, and where when if you get really sick with it and you can see some effects on the heart, that's not that uncommon, and, and even in younger patients. And so it just takes time to recover. Hopefully, that's what if that's what's going on with with Marco. I have no idea, or you know, Mr. Rossi. It's not like we're on a first name basis, but that, that's you know, it, it sounds like it's more the latter. If that's what was going on, and, and this is very hard to diagnose. Like, my, isn't it true that myocarditis you cannot know for a fact is there until I mean, sadly, an autopsy? Or am I wrong on that? Well, no, I mean, it's, well, it doesn't have to be an autopsy, and I'm trying not to nerd out too much, but, you know, we've got these great MRIs, right, and, and all these really advanced scanners, and and a, a, an athlete like a, like a Marco Rossi is going to have access to those. We can see signals on those that can look like this inflammation, but to your point, the only way to be sure is to actually look at the tissue. Now, you can do a cardiac biopsy as well, actually. They, they, we, do, we do biopsy the heart. That's the best way to make this diagnosis. What we did in, in this case, because um, autopsy, you can make an accurate diagnosis, but you really can't do a lot for the, for the actual patient, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, unless you're, yeah. unless you're a shaman or something. <laughs> but no, um, but uh, in all seriousness, I mean, but what we did was a group at Mayo and with others looked at people that had died of COVID to see how many really had this heart damage. And it's actually, thankfully, it's, it's a very minor percentage. Mm -hmm. I think it's less than 10%. So, so it's more that, that what we were seeing and what was causing a lot of concern early on are these other signals that we're getting confused for it because it's not the gold standard to make the diagnosis, to your point. Before we take a very quick break and uh, get to Twitter questions, Doc, um, I did want to ask you about antibody therapies because that is one thing that uh, you've talked to me about a lot is that that you're working and talking to the NHL about is that, you know, even even before players get sick, but even right when they get sick, that if you give them these antibody therapies that you could, you know, really cut down on the symptoms that they get and, and at, a, at a minimum 
avoid these long-term issues that a player like Marco Rossi is having. Yeah, and that's one, you know, unfortunately, so it's true. That's exactly how, uh, for those of us that live in Minnesota uh, or a part of the world that has bats, if you wake up in a cabin and there's a bat in your room and you can't catch it, you have to go to the doctor and then the doctor will say you have to get these shots in your stomach um, or in your, you know, in your butt uh, like every two weeks. What that is, is they're giving you antibodies to rabies virus in case you got bitten so that you don't get sick with rabies. Um, and that's called prophylactic immunotherapy. There's certainly a, a, a school of thought that we could sh- could and should be doing the same with COVID. Um, but unfortunately, it's right now people are so sick with it and the antibodies are in such short supply that we haven't been able to, to actually do those studies. Although this is something, again, um, that you know, as we work with these sports leagues and others, even you think in defense and others, there are some people that you really can't, you don't want them to get sick if they got exposed to COVID. And so that, that is something I think that we'll be exploring just in general. Um, and it, particularly with these newer strains, you know, that we might develop some antibodies to the newer strains that we can give to someone shortly after exposure to, to prevent them from getting sick. Cause that's what we do with other diseases of this type. Interesting. Interesting. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Back here on Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Again, as always, you can subscribe to The Athletic for theathletic.com slash straight from the source. That'll get you in for $3.99 a month. Not only will you get all our articles, which have been just beyond plentiful uh, lately, you'll get podcasts uh, throughout. Pierre Lebrun and Scott Burnside welcome St. Louis Blues GM Doug Armstrong this week on Two Man Advantage, edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. And also celebrating Black History Month, Los Angeles Kings Blake Bolden, the first black female NHL scout, is Craig Custance's guest this week on the Full 60 at The Athletic. Mayo Labs President Bill Maurice is my guest here on Straight from the Source. And uh, Doc, let's go to some Twitter questions. Um, I got some really good ones this week. Um, we talked a little bit about this, but Ben Wilkie asks, is there a known lag between being contagious and showing a positive test? If so, does this undermine the plans to eventually admit fans to events with a rapid test? Well, there is, um, like I said before, there's no, per- you know, the, the, the combination in COVID 
Uh, but actually, before I answer, I have to say the athletic is outstanding. And so I, I just, uh, it is three ninety nine, very well spent. And, and I, one of the, one of the tra- my personal tragedies of the pandemic, I've been so busy, I haven't been able to keep up with with the writing in there by as much as I would like. But going back to your question, you. um, the, the, uh, is that there's no perfect test, right? There's no test that I, like I said before, that is going to be a hundred percent sensitive. And we know that patients with COVID, they're more apt to spread it when they don't have symptoms. So, the, so that makes you worry that we'll never get a test that will be great. Well, the reality is, though, that we know having a lot of the virus makes you a lot more apt to spread it. And so that's really going to be the thinking here until until we get, you know, either herd immunity or widespread vaccination, that that's, uh, taking that test before you go into an arena will really decrease, you know, a negative test will really help. Um, it won't be perfect, but it will certainly help in terms of preventing people that are really infectious getting into the arena and spreading it around. Because that's what you worry about at these super spreader events. Yeah, it's you know what really was uh, educational for me, Doc, is is so two Wednesdays ago, um, Bukestad and Johansson test positive for the Tuesday morning um, PCR test, and then they call an all team POC test in Denver, and that's when all of a sudden Benino, Erickson, Eck, um, and one other guy, it'll come to me, uh, Benino, Erickson, Eck, and Spurgeon pop up the next day Sturm, the next day Colin Hunt. And what that shows you is that no nothing's perfect. The PCR, the more reliable test, they didn't have enough of it to test positive on the Tuesday morning. They were all negative Wednesday morning, but then yet that that day they do the rapid test and all those guys are positive and they all played the night before. I mean it it really just shows you you're almost always chasing the 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 virus uh, you know, having enough of it in your system to, or, in, you know, what is it in your upper airway or your nose? That, yeah, it's in the back of your nose. It's, it's, it seems yeah. to be really growing in a spot early on. It's hard to get a specimen from, but yeah, I mean, it's funny that what we saw and you and I've talked about this is exactly what you predict from what we know. And that is in your first three days after getting COVID, even with the best tests in the world, you're more likely to have a negative test than a positive test. Unfortunately, because of this way this virus is, that doesn't mean you can't spread it. And that might be even worse now with these new variants that are more easily spread. So that's why being so um, stringent on in the bubble, that's why the bubble was so stringent mm-hmm. and all the repeat testing and all that stuff. And that's why now, I mean, you if you have a rapid test, you got to pull people. You know, you can't just say, well, the test is positive. Maybe it's not positive enough because that's that's not what seems to be happening here. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's 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 really, you know, I, I've learned so much from talking to you the last year that we go through this process at The Athletic now because of safety and because we're in the middle of a global pandemic that every road trip that we take, we have to get approved. And they approved the Denver trip for me. And because of all the learning that I've done from you the last year, the second on Sunday morning that Felino tested positive, I canceled my trip to Denver because I'm like, I don't want to be in Denver and find out that the games are canceled and there's a big outbreak. So I just assumed an outbreak was coming. And then I'm thinking, all right, maybe you overreacted there a little bit. And then what do you know? An outbreak happens. And I, you know, I wasn't spending the company's money in Denver while uh, there was no game to be played. But uh, I was going to say, I was paying you back for all the hockey knowledge you've dropped on me over the years. <laughs> exactly. Um, here's a great question from JB that you and I have discussed before. What would it take for the U.S. to get its viral ge- genomic uh, screening and observation in line with other countries? Because that's that's the one thing that you said that we, as the United States, really haven't gotten great at is is knowing right away exactly the variants that are in the community, right? Yeah, and, well, and you know, we've had the, the the highest one of the highest infection number of infected people 
and one of the lower rates of actually doing that that fingerprinting, if you will, of the virus, the genomic sequencing. That will be, I mean, that is how the United Kingdom uh, identified the strain that was emerging there because they're, they're sequencing about 10% of the cases. Now, they have had an effort underway there called Genomics England to actually do a lot of genomic sequencing, and it's a much smaller country from a population and landmass perspective. Uh, but I think we will see, this will be a major focus going forward, um, you know, from the White House on down, it's, get, it's really ramping up the amount of cases that we're actually doing this sequencing on, just so we can get a handle on these variants and other things um, and, and knowing where we need to be, uh, you know, cautious, where we might even get to a point that if we feel that if, if there's evidence that there's an emerging strain, that once we have more vaccines and more supply, that we might be actually trying to, you know, increase vaccination. Let's say that in, in the Rochester variant pops up and looks like it's really mm -hmm. quite transmissible. There might actually be more kind of a more more of a rifle than a shotgun approach in terms of addressing where these outbreaks are. Uh, I have five or six really good questions I still want to throw at you, including some on vaccines, which we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast yet. Uh, JB also asked us, this is a really good, uh, good question, uh, I think very personal question for JB. Uh, does the big knocker think there's a situation where it would be safe for a soccer team to participate in a large soccer tournament in the Dells where there is widespread dining in restaurants, parents and bars and kids in water parks? Well, it, it, one of the things are that it, the variable that's in there is how much there is in the how much virus there is in the community, right? So if, if there's not very many people that are infected, and that's where we're getting to now, where the rates are really dropping, it becomes safer for all of us, right? But that safety still, until we get until people we reach herd immunity through vaccine or whatever, um, is is still going to be the, the risk is still there. So you if it was a place where they were masking and they still had some safety measures in place in terms of making sure dining areas didn't get too crowded and things, you know, then I think you could be reasonably safe. If you see a big upswing in cases, then all bets are off. Soccer, again, does appear to be a sport that doesn't have a lot of infield of play transmission. But to, to, to the question point, which is very good, it was an excellent one, is it's not really about what's happening on the soccer field. It's a lot more about what's happening when they're not playing. You know, so, and, so if a certain hockey writer that is beyond um, agitated right now and is getting crazy cabin fever and wants to maybe get a change of scenery this weekend to cover the road games from, say, Arizona. Would you uh, allow that as his personal physician? <laughs> in, th in that theoretical situation, I would say yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, because air travel is safe. And, and as long as you're doing the things to keep yourself safe as you go, again, the hotel industry and the airline industry are, you know, are, are really on top of things. It really comes down to, again, not letting your guard down like right. in, the, in the airport, you know, mm -hmm. at, at, a, at an airport bar or something like that. It's really, I mean, most of the times that people have COVID, you can find it, you can go back and look over their, you know, the preceding week and say, okay, that this was probably it. where it happened. You go yeah. back to even like Felino yeah. and the fight with the Kings player, the Kings player, yep. right? Yep. A hundred percent. Um, a couple questions here. Uh, Derek Felska, really good question. Do new strains potentially throw a wrench into testing or are they detectable by the current methods? Will it ever end or will we continue to chase our tail over the virus as it mutates? Great well, questions. Yeah. Yeah. Will it ever end? It will end uh, at some point. Now we, uh, we don't have time to get into that. There's just, there's a lot of different theories about how that will, how it will end, but it will end. Um, again, going back to that, if the virus is a full paragraph, sorry, yeah, no, that's not the best, but you know, the tests really that we use look for very specific parts, right? 
So is it possible that there will be changes in, the, in those specific areas that we're looking for that would make that the test negative? Actually, yes, that does happen. But the way most of these tests work is they don't just look in one spot. They look in multiple spots. So the chances that all of them would be um, affected is very low. So the tests that we have right now still appear to be very effective for for detecting the virus because it looks in multiple spots. Although I can tell you, you know, Mayo Clinic, one of the things, you know, I have a, I have friends in China. We have a, 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 a companion lab in China we work with. So I, we heard about this happening in January, you know, before it was really uh, widely recognized what this was going to be. So we started working on our own test here at Mayo Clinic Labs. Um, and that was one of the first in the country that was got EUA approval. And we don't, we're going to take it down because it is one that only looks at one specific part. So then you start to worry about with these new variants that, that, that tests like that could be negative. One really awesome question from Fetty Dean before we get into vaccines. Uh, Fetty Dean says, uh, uh, not COVID testing per se, but is cardiac screening a simple, a single time point test or does it get repeated several weeks, months down the road? It's a really good question. The one thing I was shocked at is that the cardiac screening, it doesn't sound like it's this whole in-depth thing. The way I understand it from talking to wild players is that it's just really an echocardiogram. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can assess heart function. Things we look for in COVID would be uh, the blood tests that can look for, as a heart gets damaged, it can start to leak elements from the, you know, stuff starts to leak out of the cells that are specific to heart cells. Uh, we look at the EKG, which is the electrical signaling, and then you can look at act the actual function through like an echocardiogram where you're actually taking pictures of it as it's pumping. So the reality is that we know almost a lot of patients that get sick with COVID will have some of those abnormal blood tests just because of the stress on the heart. And ironically, uh, an athlete might have higher levels just because the heart is so healthy. You know, it, it, it's it's so it, it does a lot of muscles, like just like looking at a big athlete like a Felino or a Greenway. Um, but uh, it, for those, the, the EKG and the echo would be where you get me more worried. The reality is that if those are normal, that you probably don't need to track it. If there was something, you know, whatever they picked up in a player like Rossi, uh, they're going to need to continuously monitor, right, to understand what the time course is going to be because, you know, everyone's recovery, how long it's going to take someone to recover once you detect an abnormality is going to depend on how how severe it was for them. And everyone has a different pace of recovery, right? So, so yeah, if, if you have an abnormal, you're going to have to be screened, you know, monitored, but you're not going to get screened. Probably, you know, one screen is going to be enough, I would think, a couple weeks after. Yep. And that's why Rossi was basically told today, six weeks, uh, we'll either bring you back or we'll do it virtually. And there's another player I know of that uh, very similar. Um, let's go to really quick on vaccines. Um, I got two really specific questions from from uh, readers and listeners, and then um, a really good question about vaccines and how that could affect uh, in-person uh, you know, fans coming into the arena. And then I wanted to ask you about hockey players and whether or not you think that they should be vaccine. Go to that Kevin Kerr story. Um, here's a great question from Brad. Uh, wondering on vaccine studies on special needs folks, he has a 19-year-old son with Down syndrome, presum- is presumably safe to get the vaccine, but concerned nonetheless. Nonetheless, uh, what one do you think it's safe? And uh, would he be on the priority list? So the so number one in terms of safety, and this, this is a pretty hot debate even in my own family. I mean, it is important for people to remember that these vaccines have been given emergency youth authorization, meaning that they've been authorized by the FDA to use based on safety data 
and efficacy data in, in the context of a healthcare emergency. It's not full FDA approval uh, like we see for drugs and vaccines. So we know the data shows that they're, that they're actually much more effective than we had hoped. Um, we had hoped for over 50 percent, you know, effectiveness against the virus. You know, even the J&J, which is less effective than the other two, the Moderna and Pfizer, is in the 70s. Um, but we do also have to recognize that the data we have is still relatively short term. You know, so in, in the short term, the safety, it was quite high for these. Um, I think that there was one Twitter question about Guillain-Barre type of illness with the vaccine. There was one case of that in the AstraZeneca trial, which is why it got stopped. I mean, they looked for those things and then they, they realized it was not associated. But so it's very it's safe in the short term. Long term, we'll just have to see. I, I have no reason to believe that they won't be safe in the long term. Um, but, you know, we have to also acknowledge that these vaccines are new and you just don't have long term data. But you can't go to so, don't go to social media. Um, go to someplace mm-hmm. trusted. Go to mayoclinic.org or something because there's a lot of misinformation out there. In terms of would his son be prioritized, I don't know his full health con- conditions, but but if someone is, is reason- the things we know are associated with increased mortality in COVID are, you know, elderly, are diabetes and heart disease in particular. So those are the groups that will be kind of prioritized, I think, at first from a healthcare perspective. Um, another specific question uh, from somebody that said, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm six, almost 63, I weigh, way, way too much have uh, multiple comorbidities, and I am very feel fearful of the Pfizer vaccine due to the transportation concerns. My wife is 58, also overweight, and has a mortal fear of white coats. <laughs> uh, she refuses to get any vaccine that cannot be delivered in one dose. She runs away from needles easily. What do we do for a vaccine? My primary care physician cannot do anything for me. I'm uneasy going into the state lottery pool, and there's that Pfizer thing. Any advice well, for this person? I think that if you're someone like that, it, you know, but that really the risk, it's always a risk benefit thing. And it sounds like they have, they have risks of, of disease if they were to get COVID, um, that I would advise them that if they have the opportunity to take the vaccine, whichever one's available, they should take it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even if it involves biting the bullet and getting over some fear, it, it's, it's a little weird. I think I talked about that on the radio. Even for me, um, I got both doses of the, of the Pfizer vaccine. I was a little as if sitting there in the chair thinking, well, this is all brand new. And, it, you know, it's just no use human nature. Right. And yeah. uh, but uh, but honestly, that's the thing you have to start to weigh about what what do we know of the risks of the vaccine, which are seem to be low versus the risk of getting COVID, particularly of comorbidities, which we know is high. And it's a lot more than just death, as you and I have been talking about. You know, if someone gets really sick and they're and they're overweight or they have underlying health conditions, you know, if it's hard for a Felino to get better, how much harder is it going to be for yeah. someone that's, you know, 70 and doesn't, isn't in tip top shape. Now it makes sense. It's funny you said that about the vaccine because I was watching a, a great documentary on National Geographic a couple nights ago about uh, the new Air Force One that they're building. Uh, it's $5.3 billion and they got incredible access to to watching it be built. I think it's going to be out in two or three years. And they're just going on and on about all the stuff that this plane is going to have that is so much better technology, uh, uh, both on the plane and in, in terms of frills, but also technology in terms of uh, protection and, and running the country and all that stuff. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I'd want to be the first one on this brand new, brand new <laughs> airplane that uh, is going to have all these things that, I mean, they're showing a pilot in this, uh, in, the, you know, getting, uh, getting trained on the, on the, on the plane. And he was even like, all right, so this does what? And I'm like, so, I <laughs> well, I don't know. But be, of course, if I was ever, if the country was ever in the unfortunate position that I was on air force one as the president, I mean, my, first question would probably be you know can i stream the wild games um <laughs> can, can i well, get they the, had, you know 
Yeah, it was so great. I mean, they had uh, second President Bush on there, and he was talking about like what, the one thing they realized during 9-11 when he was in the air is how little they could do from up there in terms of communication and all that stuff and how just old – you know, it's a 30-year-old aircraft. and, and yeah. uh and so that this next uh, aircraft is supposed to have like the best technology, but but it was just. It, but I highly recommend it. Was it was fascinating? I loved every second of the stock. It's like an hour long. Um, uh, I have to look it up. Yeah. Last couple questions on vaccines. Um, great question from JJ Wilson. Um, it sounds rather ignorant in theory, which I don't think it does. But what is stopping Arena Stadium from filling seats with only vaccinated fans right now? If you put ten thousand vaccinated fans in an arena, what are the risks involved? Yeah, That's I thought a great, it was question. A great question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I saw it. In fact, I saw those questions popping up, and I was like, "Whew! I'm glad we're covering these on the podcast because I'm going to get <laughs> I'm going to get like numb fingers from if I try to answer these." But um, the um, and you have to be really careful with the swipe function on an, on an Apple iPhone too because it puts some <laughs> weird words in there. Anyways, um, but the uh, the you know actually the biggest concern would be not for the people in the stadium, um, but actually what would happen after because. We know that the vaccines that are out there, you can still harbor the virus um, mm. when you have the vaccine. So if you put a bunch of people in and, you know, if, and, and look, and I've been vaccinated, you'd be like, well, if we're all vaccinated, why the hell do we have to wear masks? Right. Why can't we just be here? Why can't I just go get a, get a beer from the vendor? Like, you know, all those things. Um, and and so but the reality is that even if the people didn't get sick that were there, they could, you could actually have one person, you know, inoculate a lot of people and then they leave and then they go back home and then they're around something like the people just asked the question around getting access to the vaccine they haven't yet. So it could be a spreader event, even though the people there wouldn't get sick until we get, you know, people fully vaccinated. That would be the biggest concern that I can see. Yep. There are still some people that get sick with COVID once they've been vaccinated. Now, thankfully, mm -hmm. it looks like almost none of them get severely ill, but that, especially yeah. with the new strains, is worry about. You know, that's the biggest concern with the new strains is that some of them appear to be, um, you know, not as sensitive to some of the vaccines that have been put out there. Yeah. Well, that's what I told my mother who's getting her second dose. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, because you were really kind enough to give give me a lot of medical advice when she had COVID back in September or October ish. Um, but I told her, you know, just because you're vaccinated, don't get a false sense of security here. You know, uh, you got to still protect others. Um, yes. Well, and I would say just for your good news for your mom is that the studies are now showing that people that have COVID, had COVID that get vaccinated get seem to get really high levels of protection from the vaccine, even from some of the newer strains. That's right. very early and preliminary, but still, she should still be careful. If she listens to podcasts, yeah. please still be careful. I'm sure she will listen. Um, what? Just one last thing on this. So, like, what are the like? Are we going to have to get vaccinated every year with this? I mean, you know, with the mutating of this virus or like the flu or, or what, what's the thought on that? Yeah, well, the f most important thing right up front is to get is for people to get vaccinated if they're if they're comfortable with it. Now, and there's religious reasons about how some of the vaccines are prepared uh, coming from a Catholic family and other things that people need to take into consideration. Um, but don't let fear be the reason, you know, that you don't get vaccinated. And that's that is, you know, going back to the Kevin Kerr story, I kind of read that and cringe a little bit because it's like, well, people would think Dr. Maurice was is into the elitism or really cares about the athletes and watching on TV. I was had just been had the real privilege to participate in an NAACP event here in Rochester uh, hosted by a local chapter. I know the president, Wale Elgabede. Um, with the black community, just about the, the because of the extreme hesitancy in some parts of our 
um, uh, communities to, to get the vaccine. To me, that's the biggest concern because the, the, the more quickly people get vaccinated, the more quickly we get the disease under control and then we'll stop the emergence of these variants because the variant has to infect someone to just to happen. So so that's just I just want to make sure I get that in there and we mm-hmm. can talk more about that because, you know, these the athletes are role models. And I did ask specifically yeah. about Dumba after that. And, you know, if Dumba was ever at the wild, would that make a difference? And because you and I were talking and they said absolutely. So I think that that part about, you know, athletes being role models for people is important. and. But going to your question, likely yes. I think what we're seeing is they'll probably be, um, because of the way this virus is, it'll probably be like the flu vaccine. Uh, that's what people, that's what the best guess is right now, mm-hmm. that every year or maybe every two years, you'll have to get a booster shot for strains that are emerging. Um, but it's quite possible, too, that that we'll just adapt to this. The weird thing is we worry about this at the individual level, um, but for humankind, New infections are something that we are kind of designed, whether you believe in providence or, or science, but we're kind of designed to adapt to So, by, in our immune system. So, so, you know, there's a chance we'll get boosters. There's a chance we could adapt to mm-hmm. it. There's people that there's this COVID zero out there that people feel like we should mask and do things until we get rid of COVID completely. I, I think that genie's out of the bottle. I just don't mm-hmm. see that happening at all. Well, hopefully Target will give an extra $5 gift card to get the uh, booster for the, uh, the the coronavirus. That's the greatest perk in the world. You go there, you get a flu shot, it's free, and they give you 5 bucks. I'm like, all right, well, I want another 5 for the, uh, for the <laughs> coronavirus. Yeah, I could go for it. Yeah, and they, they have Starbucks in a lot of the Targets now, too, which is nice. Exactly. Um, but just last question for you. What is, like, when there's no pandemic in the world, what is your day job like what do you do as the president of mayo labs and the chair of the of uh, the department of pathology and i know i'm getting your whole title wrong what's your entire title <laughs> i'm the chair of lab medicine and pathology, pathology exactly so, so like there's no pandemic circulating this planet you can't go on barrero you can't do podcasts be quoting the athletic what do you do down at mayo well at first i go through withdrawal i guess but no um <laughs> but uh you know it's uh my job, I mean, you think about it, what this pandemic has showed is like no doctor can help you unless they know what you have, right? And, and the only way they know what you have is by having a test that tells you what you have. Uh, just before we came on, we have our, we have a, because we do tests. So we, this, before the pandemic, we did 25 million tests in Rochester um, in, in, in 2019. And over half of those were from sent to us from around the world for people that wanted to send things to our labs to get a diagnosis. Um, and some of these are really rare diseases that are really debilitating. As an example, um, just before I came on, we have our global field staff meeting actually happening virtually. And there was a patient that came on from Minnesota that basically was told that he had a muscular dystrophy, like an inherited disorder, and he, and he older guy, um, you know, t- classic, typical Minnesotan hunter far- or farmer guy, like outdoorsman type, um, was getting weaker and weaker to the point that he just kind of figured he wasn't going to get to do things he wanted to do. And then we had developed a test that showed that he actually had something that was treatable and he can do all the things he wants to do again. So my day job is really trying to address, <laughs> get tests that, to do, to address all these different needs for people that reach out to Mayo and maybe never get the, the privilege of coming to one of our campuses, but still need our help in terms of getting good information for their healthcare. I mean, so that's, that's what I, that's what I'm about. My, my, my specialty mm-hmm. is actually diagnosing blood cancers, but I do a lot more right now of trying to coordinate with other other doctors and other hospitals across the country 
uh, and around the world to get the testing that we need, they need uh, here so we can do it for them. Well, I, you know, honestly, what you've done throughout this pandemic and uh, really teaching uh, so many people in Minnesota that listen to the fan, especially, but also, uh, you know, being so courteous to give your time to, to places like The Athletic is two podcasts. You've done countless phone calls and texts with me. Uh, helping my mom, uh, you know, your absolute treasure. And just, we really, really appreciate it. This was a, considering we had a half hour of audio problems before we started this, this would turn out to be a pretty good podcast, Doc. Yeah, well, no, I, well, the, you know, and I hope, well, number one, I, as you know, I've been a big fan of your work for years. Um, I am, there's something about the hockey and, and the culture of the sport and the fabric of the state that all come together for me. And I think for a lot of people, so it's been a real privilege for me to have you have me on and being able to contribute and, and share what I know. Um, if it, and I'm glad if people find it helpful and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably try and like, uh, uh, if you ever do those things where you did you used to do the shows from like the Lithian stuff, and I'll just have to start uh, crashing those, I guess. When I, absolutely, when I, go to the I can't wait till we can go back uh, to live podcasts out out in public. Uh, we did a couple here with the Athletic too, and they were absolutely awesome. Um, yeah, Doc, I'll let you go. You have a lot of work putting together that vaccine to fix the wild power play. That's going to be your next uh, big uh, motivation down there at Mayo, uh, because this team's going nowhere with a six point seven percent power play. I can promise you that. Oh, it is depressing. I mean, it's just like they had so many chances, especially that you're down, you're down only one or two goals yeah. and you keep getting gifted these power plays and you got players like Fiala and, and, and uh, Kaprizov, and, you know, you got guys that it's not like in the past where you had people on the team that you didn't have people that just were natural scorers that didn't know how to put the puck in the net. So it's really frustrating. Um, hopefully they can figure it out. There is great promise. I have to say, I, before I go, I mean, what were your thoughts on on Addison's first game? I was pretty impressed. Yeah, I I, I thought he was really really good, poised. Um, you know, I think he's going to be a really good pro. So I, I like that trade from from Billy Guerin and and um, you know, I like Dakota Mermis too. I don't know if you saw that feature I wrote on him the other day, but I thought he played really well. Uh, he had one tough shift. It was his first shift, but it was his first shift in eleven month, months, and I thought he looked really good with Dumba, the third pair. Uh, yeah, that one yeah, was yeah. An adventure. <laughs> yeah, I did read that piece, and that was yeah, that was it was good. I mean, I thought a lot of the young guys really, really stepped up and played well. So, it, it, you know, it, it bodes well for the future. So, but hopefully, no doubt. we get it figured out in the present too. Yeah. Well, thanks, Doc, and uh, check out our comments section for each podcast episode of the Athletic app, and read, subscribe to Straight from the Source on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber to the Athletic, go to theathletic.com/slash Straight from the Source. Receive a subscription for just three bucks and ninety nine cents per month. Thanks so much, Dr. Maurice. Uh, thank you, man.